verse 13, and we will read to verse 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Join me in prayer, please. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. And we, Lord, ask for your grace as we come to your word this morning. We ask for your help as we come and consider your word this morning. Help our ears, Lord, that we may hear. Help our minds, Lord, that we may understand. Help our hearts, Lord, that we may believe. Lord, give help to our hands and to our feet as we put into practice all that you are commanding for your people. And Lord, as always, I decrease so that you may increase. Be glorified for Christ's sake and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is uh, with great joy that I greet you all again this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and again welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. As you all know and has been announced uh, last week, I believe, that we will be going through a, a short series that are have been inspired by a statement that was made to one of our members, not by one of our members, but to one of our members, about the death of the church during this time of the coronavirus. The statement that was said to our member was that this virus would be the death of the church in so many words. And I remember that when I heard those words, there was, at least in my soul, a great deal of of anger and A feeling of how uh, audacious this person could be to make such a statement that the church would ever, ever die. And I began to, at that moment, think about all of the, the different times that we as humans have experienced through humanity in our history. And how since the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden... To us here, many centuries and millennia later, Christ has preserved his people. That in spite of all of the wars, 
in spite of all of the viruses, in spite of all of the uprisings that have taken place throughout our history and throughout all persecutions on the church, the church remains and the church will remain until Christ calls us home or returns to get us. Brothers and sisters, there is much to be discussed in this text, but our main focus for the next three weeks will be on verse 18, which again reads, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, your Bible may say hell, will not overpower it. This will not be an exposition of the verses 13 to 20. This will be a primary focus on verse 18. The verse here, verse 18, is set within the larger context of Christ feeding 4,000 with only seven loaves and just a few fish. You all know that story. The sign was performed uh, with such great wonder and magnitude, and it was the second time that this feeding of multitudes was performed. You will remember that the first time there were 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And now there are 4,000 with seven loaves and just a few fish. And again, you know that the Bible explicitly states that they are only counting the men. The Bible states explicitly that there were 5,000 men in one instance. And then 4,000 men in one instance, not counting Uh, women and children, which means the 5,000 was more like 10 to 15,000 and the 4,000 was more like 8 to 12,000. Put those numbers into perspective. And what was the purpose of these signs? What was the purpose of Christ doing what he did? Well, why did Christ do anything that he did? Christ did all things for the same reason that you and I should be doing all things. The Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do all things for the glory of God. So why did Christ perform this sign or any other sign for that matter? It was for the glory of God. It was so that God might be glorified. And second, it was so that they and we might know that he is the anointed one. That was foretold by the prophets. He is the Christ. Now, as you are reading through the scriptures and and leading up to where we are this morning, after the feeding of the multitude, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to Jesus. And do you want to know what they are asking of him? After the feeding of 5,000 and after the feeding of 4,000, The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to the Lord Jesus Christ and they demand from him a sign from heaven. Show us that you are the Christ. Show us a sign. Now, if Christ and his sign of the feeding of the multitude was not a good enough sign, then there would not be a sufficient enough sign for them uh, to believe. And we all know this, don't we? I sit sometimes on the front row and I listen to some of you who are asking, and me as well, who are asking for prayer for different individuals and we are praying that God would save them. 
And sometimes don't you wonder, what's it, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for this person to turn and bow their knee to Christ? What kind of sign do they need to see? May I say to you that every time you speak to them, you are the sign. How can we say that? The reason why we can say that is because you can say to the person whom you are sharing the gospel with, I was either no better or maybe even worse than you. And God has saved me. If you were looking for a sign, some kind of evidence that that the gospel is true, that Christ is able to save, then look no further than the person standing in front of you. But you should look beyond me as well, because our greatest evidence is, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, He would give to the Pharisees. He said, you'll get no more evidences. You'll get no more signs, except for the sign of Jonah. And you can almost imagine Jesus saying, no more signs, you've had enough. You'll see the sign of Jonah, though. And imagine the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying to themselves, the sign of Jonah? What does he mean by the sign of Jonah? Well, what could he possibly mean, the sign of Jonah? What does Jonah have to do with Jesus? I remember saying to my son the other day when we were worshiping together, do you know the story of Jonah? Yeah, Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Do you know why Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Do you, little ones, do you know why Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Because he ran from God. God told Jonah to go and do something, to go and preach the gospel. And Jonah said, nope. No, thank you. I'm not going to do that. And Jonah ran as far away from God as he could and got on a boat. And children, do you know why he got on a boat? Do you know where he wanted to go when he got on the boat? He wanted to go as far away from the place that God was telling him to go to. He said, I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to go as far away from that place as possible. And then when he was on the boat, do you know what happened? Well, before he got swallowed by a whale, there was wind and there was waves on the boat. And the boat, with more people on it, there was people on the boat, the boat was beginning to sink. And so the people said, let's throw things off of the boat in order to save us from sinking. And guess who was on the boat? Well, Jonah was on the boat. And guess what Jonah was supposed to do? Jonah was supposed to go preach the gospel. And so while all of these people are wondering, what's going on? Why are we sinking? Jonah says, I know why we're sinking. It's because God told me to do something and I haven't done it. And so in order to save all the people on the boat, Jonah said, throw me off of the boat. If you throw me off of the boat, you all will be saved. And so the people threw Jonah over the boat into the water. And then he was swallowed by a whale. And how long was he in the whale, children? Not Well, good try, son. Three days and three nights. That's good, yes. And the Lord said to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, that will be your sign. Look at Jonah. If you want to understand me or him, look to Jonah. Because after Jonah's obedience... 
what happens to Jonah? He is spit out of the whale. After three days and three nights. And the Lord Jesus is saying to those, if you want a sign, you'll see it when I am in the tomb and when I rise again. And even that sign would not be sufficient enough for those broods of vipers. Even after Christ rises from the dead, they spread the rumor that Christ has not risen from the dead, but that His disciples came and stole His body. No further sign would be offered. There is much talk after this great sign of the feeding of the multitude about Jesus. And if you can imagine, you can imagine that there are these people and they are in this desolate place, as it were, and the Lord Jesus Christ with minimal resources, feeds the multitudes. Imagine the, 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 the stories that were told when they leave. Bro, we were in this remote place. There was no food, no, no fish, nothing. And then out of nowhere, abundance of food. And it all came as this man, Jesus. Who did you say he was? Jesus. I've heard about Jesus. I've heard like... That he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Really? I've heard that he is actually Elijah the prophet. No, you know nothing about the scriptures. He's Jeremiah. Imagine all of the chatter that is going on. And the disciples have heard the chatter. And when Jesus and his disciples reached the region of Magadan, they are there in the district of Caesarea Philippi. And maybe around a fire, or maybe at a time when they are together, feasting, the Lord has this question for his disciples. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples begin to tell him all of the gossip that is being said about the Lord Jesus Christ. You are John the Baptist. You are Elijah. You're one of the prophets. And the Lord Jesus Christ asked his disciples the question that every potential follower of the Lord Jesus Christ must answer. But who do you say that I am? And dear ones, this morning, the question is, do you know who he is? Little ones, for you as well, do you know who Jesus is? Can you echo the words of Simon Peter, which are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you can, then rejoice, because these words can only be revealed to you and only echoed by one who has been, whose spirit has been enlightened by the spirit of God. Only the spirit of God can open up the eyes of your hearts that you may see and know that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. It is a truth that can only come from the father who has foreloved you and foreknown you before the foundation of the world. And it is upon such a revelation that Christ is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He has promised to build His church. And what a wonderful reminder to all of us, especially after these 11 weeks, as we have been laboring together to maintain some type of connection with one another. As we've labored to explore different social media platforms that we might 
in some way stay connected. We've been encouraged and have been encouraging one another. Reach out more. Call one another. Text each other. uh, Pay one another a warm visit. And we might imagine that the church in these days is as a house that has sprung a leak somewhere. And that we have run to to secure that leak. And as we have secured that leak, we've only, we come to learn that there's a crack in the roof. And as we run to secure the crack in the roof so that the, the entire building doesn't come running, falling down, we learn that there is an electrical outage as well. And now we are, are working, as it were, in the dark. We might imagine that the church is something that we are trying to, to fix and to, to keep together. And that we are running here and there. Making sure that things don't fall apart. But I have learned, and I pray that you have learned, that we, whether it be our leaders or us individually, we are not the builders of the church. And we are also not the sustainers of the church. We don't keep this thing afloat. We don't plug the holes. We don't keep the roof from cracking. Uh, We don't make sure that the, the power stays on. Christ does. Christ is the builder of His church. Christ is the sustainer of His church. Christ is the one who will preserve His church. Not us. It amazes me sometimes when someone will look at a church like ours and say, how are they still there? Because Christ will build this church. When they look at, pe- at churches like ours that are precise, that are confessional, that are reformed, that are true to God's word, then they say, there's only a few. How do they remain? Because Christ will build this church. Because Christ will sustain his church. They're not a popular church. No, we're a biblical one. And Christ sustains such churches. Chiefly. And ultimately, Christ himself is the builder, the overseer, the sustainer of his church. And he has promised that no matter what, no matter what, his church, this house, his house will not fall. And we may be tempted to come into buildings like this and think that the church needs to be repaired. This is a building. It's just a building. The church is inside the building. The church is not the building. We are not faulty. We are not shifty. We are holding true to God's word. The building is. The building may be falling apart, but not us. My dear friend, because why? Because Christ is the contractor. Christ is the one who has laid out the blueprints of his church. There will be no flaw in his church. She will be a perfect, spotless bride when she is presented to him. There's no flaw here. Now, are there flawed people? Yes, but what is happening to us? We are being sanctified. We are being purified. We will not yet become, we will not come to our Father. We will not be presented to the Son soiled. 
We will be presented to the Son, to the son with perfect, uh, spotless robes. We are being made right before Him. We are being readied to be presented to our Lord. Praise God for that. Well, what are we doing here? What are the elders doing? What are deacons doing? What are members doing? We are electricians. We're plumbers. We're carpenters. We're woodworkers. We are, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are simply servants of the Lord. But it is God who gives growth. And God who does so uh, wonderfully according to His promise that He will build the church. You need to know that. You need to be encouraged by that. That Christ is building us. Wonderfully, Christ is building us. Wonderfully, Christ is preserving us. And this building program of Christ comes with an insurance policy. And it is this, that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand our advance. Did you see, did you hear the wording there? Not the advance of the gates of hell. It's not as though we're standing still and the gates of hell are pushing and pushing and pushing against us. No, we are pushing against the gates of hell. The church is the one who advances. The gates of hell are the ones who are on the run. That is the principalities of darkness. That is the evil one. He is on the run. Because there is a promise. There is an an insurance from the Lord Jesus Christ that the devil and his kingdom will not stand. And it will not be able to withstand the advance of the church, his bride. Christ's bride, while she is beautiful, she is an army. She is an army. And she is being recruited by our chief high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. She is being drawn together and brought together so that we might fight against principalities of darkness in high and low places. So that when we see different things that are taking place in the world, when we see a coronavirus, when we experience a death in an unjust way of a George Floyd, when we see burning and looting in different cities, we recognize it not as a leftist thing or a rightist thing or a libertarian thing. We recognize it as an attack or a war in the spiritual realm. Do you think that this is just racism because it's racism? Do you think that it is just unjust police because there's just unjust police? No. It is the work of the enemy. And what must be the response of the church? Well, we must be peacemakers. But what are the weapons that we've been given to fight in this warfare? They are prayer. As much as we want to get on Facebook and make long debates about who's right and who's wrong and what they should be doing and what they should not be doing, how much time have we spent on our knees in prayer? How much time have we asked the God who is sovereign over all of these things to work mightily through all of these things, to work on those who are running into different boutiques, who are running into local businesses, and those who are standing guard 
just or unjust, racist or not racist, that God would change hearts. These are the weapons that we've been given. But what are we using? Are we using them? We have weapons that God has afforded to us and given to us that we must use in times like these. They are prayer. They are God's Word. They are advancing the truth of God. They are being light in the midst of darkness. And what have we done? For all of the time that we spend watching CNN or Fox or whatever your preferred news station may be, you had better spend as much time in your knees in prayer then. Two hours on Fox? What about two hours on your knees? Arguing with unbelievers? What about praying for them? What about saying, listen friend, I know this is an injustice, but let me say to you that there is a greater injustice that you and I have inflicted upon the Lord for our sin against Him. Is this what happened to Mr. Floyd Wright? No, not in the least. But what we have done against our God is even greater and even greater offense. The Lord Jesus Christ has called us together. We've been called together from different parts of this city, different parts of this state. And as we are coming together, we are forming this this beautiful mosaic of people who call upon the name of God. And as we come to these significant verses in chapter 16 of Matthew, there's a great turning point that takes place here. Christ is beginning to lay down His building program for the church. And what is that program? Very simply, it is Christ explaining to us First of all, what the church is. How he means to defend the church against opposition that will inevitably arise. And thirdly, how he means to expand the church until the earth is full of the knowledge of God. We can get distracted from that, can't we? We can get so caught up in this world. And praise be to God for the Sabbath. Because there is a reorienting taking place as we've been immersed in all of the things of the world. Then we come on the Lord's Day and we hear a biblical perspective and say, Amen. That's exactly where my mindset needs to be. It is so easy to get deterred and distracted from the building program of Christ. I remember growing up in a church... And they had a desire to build a a building. And I can say to you this, for at least the three to four years that this, this plan was set into motion, listen, nothing else mattered. Give your money. There's the blueprint. We all would, as we walked into the congreg, to the sanctuary, as it were, we would see the, the blueprint. Oh, this is going to be there. This is where the nursery is going to be. Wow, we're going to have a large field. We would look at that blueprint and say, I cannot wait until that happens. And then guess what? And then we finally got to the plot of land. And it was a piece of dirt. And you don't want to be worshiping in a tent on dirt in the middle of the summer. But we did. 
And we did so because we were looking forward to the building that was being built right next to us. It was the goal. It was the plan. Nothing else mattered. Let me say to you that Christ has given us His blueprint. I will build my church. I will preserve her, protect her, and sustain her and bring her to the very end. How often has your mind been on that? On Christ building His church and you being able to look at it and say, I cannot wait to get there or wait to get here. And I'm tasting little parts of it now, but I cannot wait for the full experience of it. It is so easy to lose sight. It is so easy to be distracted. It's vitally important for us to understand. Can I say to you, the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world, what was it? Why did Christ come? If someone was to say to you, why did Jesus Christ become incarnate? Well, our... Probably first immediate response might be he came to save sinners. And to that we would say yes and amen. Is that the only thing that Jesus has come to do? When we talk about the purpose of the incarnation, when we talk about the purpose of the advent of Christ, is it only so that he might save sinners? We are thankful that He has saved us. But the only thing that Christ has uh, coming and saving sinners is not the only capital, only thing that Christ has come to do. Christ has come as a master builder. He has come as a master contractor. He has come to the earth. And guess what the earth is? It is the construction site of God. And he says there, I will build my church. And that is, of course, what we as a congregation, God's people have been talking about over the past few weeks. And it is what we are. We are the church. We are stones, living stones that have been... uh, specifically and precisely placed in specific places so that we might worship God and house His glory. That when we assemble, God's glory uh, is among us in a very unique way. As we, as living stones come together, we are, are the fulfillment of the temple of the Old Testament where the glory of God dwelled. We might say, but there's only 25, 30 people here. Is God's word being precisely taught? Yes. Are his people coming to it in faith? Yes. Then God is present among us. And in this, God is displaying, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, the manifold wisdom of God that it might be now made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God has brought us to Christ in different ways. He's given us different gifts. He's brought to fruition different graces in us. But the great purpose that our Lord Jesus Christ has 
is not therefore to treat you and I as isolated individuals in this church and to work on us only as individuals alone, but to bring us together and to create out of us together a glimpse of the wonder that is ours in heavenly places as we form and are being built together as the church of Christ. You have not been brought into this church, brother and sister, to be an individual. And that's a far cry from what we have been raised to believe. Many of us have gone into church, churches that we've been raised in. It's been our walk with Christ individually, our study with Christ individually in His Word, our talking to different, uh, our talking to our families individually, but it's never been about a corporate thing for most of us, at least for myself growing up. And for some of us, there's an adjustment that needs to be made, isn't there? I'm learning how to be a part of a corporate body. When all of my Christian life, I've only assumed that it's been just about me and my own. We must shed this false notion that your Christianity is only about you and your family. We must shed this notion that that what you learn is only for you and you alone. It's for you to share. It's for you to encourage. It's for you to challenge. It's for you to correct. It's for you to build up, for you to uplift, to you to come, for you to come alongside of, for you to, to rebuke, etc., etc. Your fellow believer. The one that you are running this race with. Remember, we're running the race not as individuals, but as those who are grabbing hands one with one another and running together. And it gets difficult, doesn't it? I haven't even got to my points yet. It gets difficult, doesn't it? When, as we are holding hands with, it's going to be all right, with one another, that we sometimes get irritated by one another. Or somehow someone does us wrong and we are so tempted to let go of one another's hands and say, I'm not running with you no more. I think I'll grab his hand or her hand. It is against this background, let me get to my points, that Christ has chosen 12 apostles and said to them, I will build my church. It's very interesting that when Jesus asked his disciples who he was, he hears that one of the people that Christ is being called is Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? It is because, in part, Jeremiah's ministry is a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah is called to uproot, to pluck up and destroy everything that was against the purposes of God. But not to leave things destroyed. He was also called to plant and to rebuild. And apparently there were some who saw this in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is one who has come to destroy and also at the same time to rebuild. So then what does it mean for us to be in fellowship with Christ who has promised to build and preserve his church? Uh, Briefly this morning, there are at least three things that I'd like to, with God's help, share with you. Number one, 
According to Jesus, his church constitutes a people who are brought together in Christ. Or if you want to shorten that up, according to Christ, we are brought together in Christ. According to Christ, we are brought together in Christ. The church is people who are brought together in Christ. And again, the building is not RBC. Thank God for the building, especially in times like these. But RBC is the building. RBC is not the building. Uh, RBC is the people who meet inside of the building. It is those who have trusted in Christ that constitute what the church is. Christ is building His church in such a way that as we gather, we are stones uh, assembling together to house the glory of God. We are what the tabernacle was, what the temple of Solomon was. And that's the imagery that Simon Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2. The Lord is building us together as living stones in the church into a temple in which the Lord God is pleased to come and to fill this place with His glory. Imagine trying to build with stones that have their own personalities. A stonemason might say, well, stones do have their own personalities, but bear with me. Imagine building with stones that speak back to you. Building with stones that wiggle as you're trying to place them in their specific or designated areas. Stones who refuse the stonemason and say, I'm not going in there. And that's true of the stones or bricks that Christ is putting into place. We all have these personalities of our own, don't we? We have these wills of our own, these sins of our own, these ideas of our own. And we are a difficult people, aren't we? We're not easy. I think that we've all experienced in any amount of time that we've been in church, church people are not easy people. Can I say real quick... One of the reasons why church people are not easy people is because some professors of church, some professors of Christ are fake. They don't mean to be people of the book. When you are a person of the book, then your attitude, your temperaments, your wills, your ideas are always grounded upon the book. Other side note. But imagine these stones that Christ is building speaking to him as we do. Imagine all the voices as Christ is trying to place them in their proper place. And Christ is saying, you're going to fit in there. And we're saying, I'm not going in there. You will fit in there. Why should I fit in there? Because I'm your Lord. I've told you, you need to fit in there. Do you know what's happening right now as God's word is going forth? Christ is saying as the builder, you're going to fit in there. That's where you're going to go. And we as stones often rebel and say, I don't want to go in there. I don't like the way that feels. I don't want to squeeze into that. It's not nice for me. But you belong there. And it is almost as if sometimes Christ is saying, you will fit in there if it kills me. Because it did kill me. Because it did kill me, you will fit in there. And the glorious results of 
us fitting in where Christ has placed us, us being shaped and fashioned the way that Christ has made us so that we might better reflect and house the glory of God is that we, men, women, young and old, that we are becoming more like Him. That we are being bound together, not individually. There is not a church that is just one stone. We are a multitude of stones being brought together. And we are then bound together because we are divinely cemented together. Christ has divinely cemented us together, divinely placed us together. We are stuck together because Christ has bound us together, stuck us together, as it were, with divine cement. If you are in Christ, then you can look to your neighbor as they used to say back in the old days and say, you're stuck with me. We are bound together because we are united in Christ. We have been brought together by our Lord. He is calling us to love one another because He has died to bring us together. It's one of His purposes. It wasn't just to save us individually. It was to then bring us together. And how have we learned over these past 10, 11, 12 weeks how much we need each other? How much we need each other. And if Christ has died to bring us together, then nothing will stop Him from His purposes of binding us together in a devotional love toward one another. And I I pray that it's something that, that we see here that's different than what we see out there. Isn't that what you're looking for? Besides the means of grace being offered in a biblical way, aren't you also looking for and longing for True Christian fellowship with saints. That, that, that when you come together with men and women of God, that your relationships are true, that they're not fake, that they're not pretentious, that I could say to Anthony something that is corrective and he can say something to me and I will not say when he corrects me, I'm done with you. How dare you correct me? Or when I correct him, he not say to me, we're done. Shunned. That's a real biblical relationship. That's a real being bound together and united in Christ kind of relationship. And we pray to God that when men and women are are here, they're able to say, there's something different here. Yes, the order of service is a lot different than I'm used to, but there is something different here. It is the evidence that We have a divine master builder who has determined to build his church and to bind his people together in his fellowship, in his presence. Christ is building his church. I need to move on quickly, but let's go to number two. And Jesus has called us together to meet with him. Again, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. We are called together in Christ. And as we meet together with Christ... Or meet together, we are meeting with Christ. That's what we've been talking about over the past six or seven weeks in our studies on the means of grace. Now, I'd like you to follow me for just a moment here. 
In Matthew chapter 16, the, the word church is used here. And if you've ever read through, and I'm sure you have, the book of Matthew, you will notice that this is the first time that the Lord Jesus Christ uses the word church. Up until this time, he's been using only the word kingdom. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, in Matthew chapter 16, after this confession or profession of Peter, he changes this word from kingdom to, to church. Ecclesia. And what ecclesia means is simply an assembly. Or a gathering. Now, you have heard this word before, haven't you? Ecclesia. But what we have to ask is, why is this word used? Again, up until this time, we are only hearing the word kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And then now, all of a sudden, Christ says, I will build my ecclesia. Why the shift? What is the theological reason for the shift in language? Can I say to you, Ecclesia is not a unique word. It's not a rare word. It's not as though Christ said, I will build my ecclesia. And everyone said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Never heard that word before. What does that mean? What are you doing here? Ecclesia was used before Christ ever said ecclesia. Before there were Christian ecclesias, there were non-Christian ecclesias. Ecclesia meaning assembly. What were those non-assemblies? Well, the word itself goes back as far as the 4th and 5th century, and it was used by people like Aristotle, who was a, a Greek philosopher. And oftentimes, Aristotle and other philosophers would use the word demos, which means people. For example, the demos gathered, or the demos ecclesiad, the people gathered. Does that make sense? When those uh, people, the demos, disassembled, they were no longer an ecclesia. They were just the demos again. Now, the point of that is to say that the word's been used before. The word has been used to describe gatherings. And those gatherings were not for the purpose of worshiping God. We know of gatherings today, don't we? There are many people gathering for worship. And there are many people who are gathering for other reasons, whether that be to protest whether that be to riot and loot, whatever those reasons are, there are ecclesias going on all over the place. The question that we have is, what is the purpose of their gathering? The Lord Jesus says, I will build my gathering, my assembly, and follows it up with, and the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against it. Well, if we're talking about gatherings, right? People are gathering for specific reasons. Jesus says, I will build just ecclesia. His ecclesia. It is his gathering. 
And who is the one who establishes it? Well, we've already talked about that on our first point, isn't it? Haven't we? Jesus does. I will build. He is the builder of what? His assembly. Christ is the one who builds his assembly. There are people who are gathering, but they are gathering for different reasons. They are not assemblies or ecclesias of Christ. Christ says, I will build one, and they will gather together in my name. And when they gather together in my name, he will be present there among us. Why? Because he has built us, because we are here for him, and since we are here for him, he would not be a rude guest as to not show up. We are here. And he is among us. Now, he is not the guest. We used to be the guests. Now we are those who live and dwell with him. We should be very careful when I was growing up. Sorry for all these when I was growing up stories. I used to hear, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. No, he welcomes us. We welcome you into our presence. No, he welcomes us into his. So, praise be to God that he has invited us this morning to come and to worship. And he is among us. We are among him. Christ is announcing with Peter's confession... That the kingdom of God belongs to those who are a part of his ecclesia, his assembly. Up until this time, he's been talking about the kingdom. The kingdom members are those who enter by way of this confession. That Jesus Christ is the Christ, the son of the living God. This profession of faith uh, in Christ is one's entrance or key, if you will, into the assembly that will reign in the kingdom of God forever. And this assembly, this kingdom is both eschatological and it's, well, it's heavenly and it is eschatological. And what do I mean by that? I'll tell you in just a moment. The church, the Lord is saying, is the new assembly. And he is really pointing back to the first great assembly. In the days of Exodus, when God delivered his people from bondage, the bondage in Egypt, and brought them to do what? what? Let me ask you if I could just have your attention for just a second. Why did God rescue his people out of Egypt? What was the purpose of that? Stop and think for a second. Every time that Moses went to Pharaoh, what did he say? Pharaoh, God is saying, fill in the blank. Some of you may be remembering uh, Charlton Heston at this moment. <laughs> Let my people... No, there's more to that there, isn't there? So that they may worship me. So that they may assemble and worship me. It was not just a negatively saving the people of God out of Egypt so that they may be free from bondage. It's just one aspect of it, isn't it? Because the other aspect of it is so that they may leave Egypt, leave the place of bondage, assemble with festivity at the foot of Mount Sinai and worship God. 
As you read through the book of Exodus, you'll notice this was the purpose. Not, not simply so that they may be removed from slavery. You have not just been saved from your sin. You have been saved so that you might assemble with the people of God and worship God. To assemble with the people of God before the face of God and worship Him. This is why, brothers and sisters, especially in times like these, as I was driving to, to the church building, I was saying to, to Brother Anthony, actually, churches are opening, and I'm watching how people are entering. Some of them are wearing masks. Some of them are wearing masks and gloves. Listen, they're at least assembling. They're coming. They're saying, I know that this is out there, but I've got to meet with the saints. I've got to come and meet with God and be in His presence. You've not just been saved from sin, from the justice of God. Yes, you have. But you've been saved from Egypt so that you can come and worship God. So it was in the days of Moses and so it is today that we must have this wonderful understanding that as they did, that God has come down among men to be gracious to them. But the prophets of old always spoke of something that would come that would be greater than that. Something that would come that would be even more glorious than that. There would be an assembly that would be the fulfillment of all assemblies. And here in Matthew chapter 16, Christ is saying, and now I'm going to build that. I will gather people not just from this nation, but from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And they will be one assembly who will gather with me and worship Him. Worship Him. The nations will come. They will assemble in the presence of God. They will gather for worship. And it will be different, though. It would be different than what they experienced on Mount Sinai. Can I show you something in Hebrews chapter uh, 12? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that can be touched to a blazing fire. And to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Listen to the description there. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to him, to them. For they could not bear the, the command. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stone. And so it was terrible. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. This was how the assemble gathered and under the circumstances that they gathered in. That when they gathered, there was lightning and thunder and whirlwinds and darkness and gloom. And when God spoke, it was as if the ears of the people were, were, were plugged and covered in great fear and trembling of what God was saying. Imagine going to church and that's what your, your experience would be. <laughs> I'll see you next Sunday <laughs> or Saturday. I'll see you next Saturday. Imagine that. So fearful that, that um, even an animal, nothing could touch that mountain without dying. There was fear to come to the presence of God. 
And they are speaking of a time when there will be no fear. But as the writer of the Hebrews said that we would be 